Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Yorkshire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective and outside the Westminster bubble, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, covering the North every day with an email newsletter that drops in your inbox just before lunchtime and brings you up to date with the latest political news from our region. All you need to do to sign up is visit www.thenorthernagenda.co.uk. In this week's episode, we're going to have a bit of a change in direction from the usual interviews and focus on an issue that has reached boiling point in several cities in the north of England. I'm talking about clean air zones, the schemes being introduced around the country where the owners of the most polluting vehicles are forced to pay as much as £60 a day in some places to enter certain roads and areas. Such schemes, which already operate in London and more recently in Birmingham and Bath, have proved highly controversial both for the owners of the vehicles faced with huge bills to avoid paying the new tolls and also for green campaigners who say things aren't moving fast enough. In the coming months, we're expecting to see clean air zones introduced in Bradford, Sheffield and Newcastle in a bid to bring down pollution to below legal levels. But undoubtedly, the biggest clean air zone in the north is in Greater Manchester, where a zone covering all 10 boroughs is coming into force later this year and involves a network of nearly 900 cameras to check whether polluting vehicles are entering. And the sheer size of the affected area and the impact it will have on the owners of commercial vehicles and taxis has prompted a huge backlash against Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham. For an example of the strength of feeling, let's have a listen to a phone-in last week on Mike Sweeney's BBC Radio Manchester show, where the mayor took calls from listeners. It happens every Thursday at 10am, but Mike said he'd never had a show like it, as the clean air zone and its implications dominated the conversation. I run a coach company in Wigan. We have seven vehicles. None of them are compliant with Euro 6. Some of them can't even be retrofitted. Uh, We've had more support throughout the COVID pandemic and had to take on a Sybil's loan, which has now put us in £173,000 of more debt. Our seven vehicles, if they were out every day for a year in Wigan, we'd be paying an extra £153,300 in this charge alone. Um, Are we supposed to survive? The question is, I've got eight ice cream vans. Our company's been trading 100 years after just through one world war and through COVID. Now, we're going to have to close this summer if you bring this tax in. Eight vans going out six days a week is £480 a week. On the year, it's £24,960 a year. Now, we can't afford that. We've been running 100 years, and you brought this tax in. And all you keep saying about the government, the government have told you to get the pollution down. But I've had good authority from two MPs who've contacted me, contacted me saying that this is your idea 
the government have told you to get the air down, but this is actually your idea. So, and another thing is, you can get a grant to, to buy new vans, but a, a new ice cream van used to be seventy thousand pounds. Now they've gone up this year to ninety thousand. I voted Labour. I won't be doing it again if this, if this goes through. What it is. The whole problem is the size, the size of the area and the, the lack of information that's been given to people. It's been in the pipeline for so long, for so long. And I only found out just before Christmas. I'm a bricklayer, self-employed bricklayer. I bought a new van last year for seven grand. It's worth half that now. And I'm devastated, basically. What, what, what the, it's the size of it. You're crucifying people is what you're doing. The size of it. Government ministers were ordered by the Supreme Court to deliver measures aimed at tackling the levels of harmful nitrogen dioxide in the air following pressure by environmental groups. The Royal College of Physicians and of Paediatrics and Child Health estimates that 40,000 premature deaths a year in the UK are linked to poor air quality. In Bradford, one in five children already has a breathing problem and Greater Manchester has 152 separate stretches of road on which nitrogen dioxide is at illegally high levels spread across every single one of its 10 boroughs. The proposed solution to the problem, clean air zones, introduce measures to improve air quality, which include charges of up to £60 a day, in the case of some coaches, HGVs and buses, for vehicles which don't comply with environmental standards. The hope is that these measures, combined with extra funding and incentives, will encourage people to upgrade to cleaner models or use sustainable modes of transport. But as the Northern Agenda looks at the different schemes being brought in across the region, it's clear that local leaders across the North are taking very different approaches. In Leeds, for example, one of the cities which planned to introduce a clean air zone, what was described as a dramatic shift to cleaner vehicles means a pollution charge is no longer required. The vast majority of buses and HGVs driven in the city now use more environmentally friendly engines and so would not have been charged if a zone was introduced, Leeds City Council said last year. Meanwhile, in York, a voluntary clean air zone focused on buses alone, which did not involve charges and expensive cameras, but required all regular city centre buses to have low emission engines, is already in place and has seen big improvements in air quality. In Newcastle, the clean air zone focuses on an area of the city centre covering just four square kilometres. But as in Greater Manchester, there are fears that not enough money is being provided by government to allow the owners of polluting buses, lorries and taxis to switch to newer models. So let's take a trip across the north to get to grips with the issues facing local leaders and motorists as they wrestle with the issue of how to make our air cleaner. I think the only place we can start is in Greater Manchester, where, as things stand, the first vehicles will be charged under the region's huge clean air zone from May. But there's a lot more to the story than that, so let's bring in Jen Williams, the Manchester Evening News political editor who's been following this from the beginning. Jen, welcome back. Hi, nice to be here. To fully understand the politics behind the Greater Manchester Clean Air Zone, you need to go back a few years, don't you, to the proposals for a congestion charge, which never in the end came to fruition. So how how did we get from there to where we are today? Yeah, so the congestion charge is still sort of it still kind of looms as a bit of a political spectre in Greater Manchester and it was it was an attempt really to ultimately fund a better transport network here and in about 2008 uh, they held a referendum to ask people whether or not they wanted this um, congestion charging zone and it was a bit of a kind of um, I suppose based on what London had already done 
and that referendum didn't go very well for the people who were arguing in favour of it. It was very much being sort of led by Manchester Council and it was rejected by something like four to one. So it was just a complete kind of political disaster. It just didn't it didn't work. And and people have not forgotten that at all. Subsequently, they found other ways of getting the public transport network funded, although possibly not to the extent that they, you know, they've still not finished it. So that that kind of was put to bed, I suppose, back in 2008. But it has always meant that politicians are very nervous about anything that, that sort of looks like a congestion charge. And the clean air zone isn't a congestion charge because technically it shouldn't really be a revenue raiser. The idea is to actually just use it as a as a way of pushing people into cleaner vehicles. But nevertheless, you know, it's still it's still a charging mechanism for people, not for private uh, drivers, but for in this case, HGVs, buses, coaches, taxis, and vans. So very early doors when the idea of a clean air zone was starting to to float around after um, the government had been defeated in High Court by the environmental group Client Earth on clean air. When that was first sort of floating about in the background in Greater Manchester, it coincided more or less with Andy Burnham being elected for the first time. And one of the first things that he said was that he would never start charging private motorists, private cars. That's partly because that sort of congestion charge dynamic, that congestion the memory of the congestion charge is still sort of very large. And then since then, the plan's been through various iterations. And what basically emerged was a greater Manchester wide zone that would charge uh, non-compliant vehicles other than private cars to drive into or around within Greater Manchester. So it's the biggest clean air zone of its of its kind. And the, the reason is that according to the analysis that Greater Manchester has done as part of this work, every single, well, according to the government, every single uh, local authority in Greater Manchester, all 10 of them are breaking air pollution rules. And according to Greater Manchester, there's about 150 separate hotspots across those 10 boroughs. So what they then drew up was uh, rather than having a load of smaller clean air zones they just they've just done this one big greater manchester wide one and the first phase of that would come in in may of this year so that would be lorry and lorries and buses and coaches and then the second phase of it would be the vans and taxis which would be a year later even although this has sort of been in the offing for a good five years it only seems to have really broken through into the public consciousness like in a really big way in the last few weeks when the cameras have started to go up and people have started to realise just how much it's potentially going to cost them to replace their vans in, in a market where there's really not much available in the way of second-hand vehicles at the moment. And listeners will have heard the angry callers on BBC Radio Manchester earlier in the podcast. So what what's the main controversy about how this scheme will operate? The main issue is the cost and the ability to replace your van to upgrade your van to replace or upgrade or retrofit your taxi and that was already going to be quite an expensive undertaking across Greater Manchester and they'd already negotiated a 120 million pound fund with the government in order to help people to do that then the market has um, it was already quite limited I think the second hand market for those vehicles but that's then become more and more limited during the pandemic as a result of uh, global supply chain issues lockdowns uh, in other parts of the world meaning that manufacturing has slowed down or ground to a halt so then you you know the, the, the costs or the availability of second-hand vehicles has, has then increased or the availability has dwindled. 
in fairness to Greater Manchester, they they had sort of seen that this was going to be a problem. And last year, they they commissioned a bit of work to look at it. And in fact, just before we started recording this, the Greater Manchester Combined Authority put something out to say that their analysis suggests costs have risen by up to 60% as a result of those problems. So what you heard on Radio Manchester was the reality of that for individual traders, for individual business people, for individual taxi drivers who were ringing in and saying, like, I just don't know how I'm going to be able to afford to do this. And have you definitely got enough money in your pot to guarantee that everyone is going to be able to, to to swap up to a better vehicle? And the answer is no, that like they can't guarantee that. And they don't know what happens if when that pot runs out, which is why they're now going back to government and trying to argue to get um, more money. So I know you've written, uh, and it's quite clear from that phone in, that this is an issue that's generating more heat against Andy Burnham than he'll probably have been used to in his tenure as Greater Manchester Mayor. I mean, is there a party political element to this uh, or are Labour and the Tories pretty much on the same page in terms of how how this should be uh, operated? There is a party political element to it. I mean, for a start, I suspect that this would be a big issue at the local elections in May. So I think both Labour and the Tories want to be seen locally to be on the side of the people who are going to be affected and to be doing something to try and help them, which I guess is, is sort of where Andy Burnham's instincts are in terms of wanting to be able to say to people, I am on your side, I am going to do something about this. But of course, one of the problems is they haven't got loads of latitude because it's been it's come from a government directive and the councils are very much looking over their shoulder at any potential judicial review from client earth who've been willing to take legal action successfully in the past and wouldn't hesitate to to sue the councils in Greater Manchester. And then at the same time, you've got Conservative MPs who have some of whom have been against this for quite some time, who don't necessarily even agree with the premise of it in some cases, but certainly want to be seen to be standing up for their constituents. So both political parties are kind of in that space, wanting to be seen to be on the on the side of those people. And as I say, I think it is likely that it will come up as a as a local election issue. But actually, in both cases, there's a limit to what either group of politicians can actually do, because the real conversation needs to be had with central government. It's about funding. It's also about whether or not the zone actually achieves what it is setting out to do. Because if you haven't actually got that market there to get people compliant vehicles, then is the zone even going to do what it's intending to do, which is which is cut nitrogen dioxide uh, levels to, to to safe levels by 2024. That's when they're supposed to have, have cut the pollution. There's certainly locally there is a party political element to it, and it's not surprising given the the level of anger that was that has been sort of unleashed. But it's there's a bit of a kind of question mark over is central government really that bothered like have they really clocked that this is something that maybe they need to be getting involved with and I think so I think in that respect it's a kind of watch this space and then if something does happen then I guess both sets of politicians in the local elections will try and will, will seek to claim credit for it. Jen Williams thank you very much. So one of the big northern cities asking polluting vehicles to pay to enter certain areas is Newcastle, where some motorists will face charges of up to £50 a day from this summer. But just as in Greater Manchester, the introduction of a clean air zone is not without controversy. Let's find out a bit more from Dan Holland, the local democracy reporter for Newcastle. He's been covering the story from the start. Hi, Dan. Hi. Hi, Rob. Nice to have you on. So 
Unlike Greater Manchester, the Newcastle clean air zone covers a relatively limited area, doesn't it? It does, yeah. So it's just in Newcastle city centre as opposed to the whole wider area. For anybody who doesn't know their northeast geography that well, there's no big ring railroad around Newcastle like a lot of cities have. Instead, you've got the central motorway, which runs over the Tyne Bridge and effectively right through the heart of the city. And that's where the councils up here have been told that they've got to target that reduction in pollution. Um, So it's a lot smaller than Greater Manchester's, but the charges are broadly similar. So we're talking £50 a day for buses, coaches, HGVs that don't comply with emission standards, £12.50 for taxis and vans, no charges whatsoever for private cars. The details of this have been around for a while. And what, what have, what's the reaction to it been generally across the city? It has probably unsurprisingly come in for a lot of criticism, although I think it is worth saying, I think the vast majority of people do recognise that air pollution is a serious problem in Newcastle and something needs to be done about it. The, the figure that's always been out there, I think, is that air pollution here is linked to more than 300 deaths or premature deaths every year on Tyneside. So it's clearly a problem. But like in Manchester last week, we've had businesses here saying it's going to be a disaster for them, particularly those small independent businesses in the city centre who have no choice but to bring in their produce or whatever it might be in the van. And now they've got this big extra charge that's about to hit them at a time when a lot of people are struggling anyway, obviously. We've got bus operators who've been furious that they're being targeted for these tolls, saying it might force them as a result to increase ticket prices for people, when actually what I think everybody wants to be doing is encouraging more people to get on public transport, not to avoid it. And then on the other side of the debate, you've also got people saying it doesn't actually go far enough to deal with the scale of the crisis, that it's a bit of a fudge of a scenario that doesn't do anything to tackle car journeys. Although I would say as well, it's worth pointing out that the clean air zone isn't exactly popular with the councils who are bringing it in either. It's just kind of the only real option that's been left on the table for them to comply with the government's order. And I think given the chance, what they'd prefer would be a less sort of punitive measure that was about giving people positive incentives to use cleaner forms of transport, making rail journeys, bus journeys, metro journeys cheaper, faster than using your car, as opposed to just punishing people for driving high-polluting vehicles without bringing in big improvements to other services at the same time. So is it the case that this the clean air zone is basically the quickest way of bringing about these changes? Obviously, there are less punitive some measures, as you say, available, but this is this is what's going to bring uh, the, the pollution levels down as quickly as possible. It is, yeah, and as quickly as possible is the key phrase that's always quoted back whenever there's any questions in the clean air zone. The councils, Newcastle and Gateshead councils up here, are under a legal order from the government, as various other areas around England are, to reduce air pollution in the shortest possible time. And that's why the clean air zones are on the table. That's why they are considered to be the measure by which this is going to be done. When actually, I think 
a lot of leaders would prefer to do something more different, more gradual, less punitive, as I said. But because of that requirement for it to be done in the shortest possible time, this is what's on the table. It's been delayed, though, hasn't it? Like it, it was, it's coming in this summer, as as things stand. But um, that originally it had been due to start a little earlier. What what happened with that? Yeah, so it was meant to be January of 2021. So this time last year, we're now looking at starting in this July. So in about six months' time. A couple of reasons for the delay that have been given. One being quite obviously, local councils and the government have had a lot on their minds for the last couple of years with everything COVID and that's had a knock-on impact. The other issue that they had in Newcastle was there was a legal challenge that actually ended up going to the High Court. So there was an after the tender process that went out to supply the number plate recognition cameras that will make the clean air zone work, an unsuccessful bidder who lost out on that contract challenged the outcome of the tender process. Ultimately, that got dismissed by a judge, I think, in November of 2020, if I remember rightly. But obviously, that did cause a big holdup because at the time, that was meant to be only six weeks or so, I guess, away from the original target date. So even if COVID hadn't happened and there were no other delays, it would have been a very, very quick turnaround from that point, given the the legal challenge. Obviously, as in in Greater Manchester, there's a huge area that's been covered. But in the northeast, it's just Newcastle city centre, as as you've been describing. I mean, I know that uh, you know pollution levels are an issue in other parts of the northeast. Have the, have the council explained, or the various councils involved, explained why it's just Newcastle city centre and not other other areas that are subject to a, a clean air zone? Yeah, th- there were a few different options considered if we're going back to sort of 2019 when this was first being introduced. Originally, the plan was for the clean air zone to be slightly bigger than it is now. So it would have gone a little bit further up into Newcastle. It would have covered Central Gateshead as well on the other side of the Tyne. There was also a kind of bigger second version of the clean air zone, which would have been much, much wider, not quite greater Manchester size, but considerably bigger than one we have now, which would have gone out to the A1 and to the A19. Ultimately, though, that second version was scrapped and the even the smallest version that was originally proposed was watered down to just cover Newcastle City Centre on the grounds really that the city centre was the area where the councils are being told to really target the air pollution. And if you had a bigger one, it might not have that specific impact on the city centre itself. And it would increase the the negative impacts of the clean air zone. It would hit more people with tolls without necessarily having a, a return positive impact by reducing pollution. You would just be charging people for journeys that they have no choice to make or not, which I know has been a big part of the criticism Greater Manchester way. Obviously, it's a it's not an easy thing to introduce a clean air zone. Uh, there's 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 all the ANPR cameras and uh, all, various different things that you have to do to make this work. I mean, what have been the big challenges that you've observed that that political leaders and the different authorities in the northeast have have, have had during this process? I mean, one big issue still right now 
is that we are six months away from this starting and we still have no idea what kind of support there's going to be for people to upgrade their vehicles to newer models that wouldn't be affected by tools. So last September, I believe, there were plans announced by Newcastle and Gateshead councils to give out grants of up to £20,000 per vehicle, depending on what kind of vehicle you've got, van, bus, HGV, whatever. But all of that is dependent on the government paying for it. The councils asked for £23 million, I believe it was, and the government hasn't said whether it's going to give them that money yet. So on top of reminding people that this clean air zone is actually happening in six months' time, on top of getting all the signs and the cameras in place and working, the system's all set up, you've got this other issue on top of it, which is you need to sort out the grant system too. And one other thing that uh, I want to mention, another concern that I know a lot of people up here have, is that because the CAS is specifically focused on the city centre, there is a real worry, I think, for people in more outlying areas of Tyneside that traffic is just going to be diverted. So vans and lorries in particular that actually aren't driving into the city centre but are just going along the central motorway through it to get to somewhere else might just now choose to head further west to go up the A1, cross the Tyne, further up the river because they want to avoid the tolls and there is another road there. There is an alternative point for crossing the Tyne, whether it's further up on the A1 or further down the river at the Tyne Tunnel. And I know there have been particular concerns from councillors in the West End and the outer west of the city that you might simply shift the pollution problem out there and give yourself a new you know, emissions hotspot that you need to be dealing with in a couple of years' time. Obviously, the, a clean air zone is only one of the things that a council or local local leaders could be doing to tackle air pollution. And obviously, the the wider aim, you know, particularly with the the the, the pandemic as well, is to encourage people to leave their cars at home and you know use more environmentally sustainable forms of transport. I mean, what what else is going on in Newcastle and the northeast at the moment to sort of aid that agenda? There are absolutely loads of plans. Before I get into what is happening, I'll tell you something that's not happening. One thing that they were meant to be bringing in alongside the clean air zone was they were going to half the number of lanes on the Tyne Bridge. The idea being that when they announced that private cars would not be charged in the cars, there was a caveat which said, don't think you're getting away with it. We're going to make it harder for cars to drive into Newcastle, even without a toll, because going to cut the number of lanes on the time bridge so people aren't going to want to drive there we're going to make them priority lanes for buses that is now not happening anymore it's sparked a lot of anger a lot of questions about whether it was just going to cause massive tailbacks and more congestion and more pollution as a result and ultimately the councils now say that it's not needed to bring down pollution levels so it's not going to happen they do have a lot of other plans though so we've had ideas like big freight consolidation centres happening outside of the city centre where a lorry could drop off its cargo and then have it brought into Newcastle uh, for the final mile or so of its journey on some kind of electric vehicle. I don't think off the top of my head that there are specific plans or locations for those yet, but it's certainly an idea they're exploring. We've got a few low traffic neighbourhoods in Newcastle right now and plans for more of them. 
there are plans to ban parents from parking outside some schools to pick up and drop off their kids uh, at busy times. And probably the, the, the big kind of headline one, the one that has the nice pretty picture on it that goes on the front of the Chronicle, is pedestrianising a big section of Newcastle city centre, including Grey Street, which if you haven't visited Newcastle, is the most beautiful street in the UK. Look it up. It's got this amazing Georgian architecture swooping down at the quayside, but it's been kind of labelled for many years by um, by Nick Forbes, Newcastle's council leader, as uh, as the UK's most beautiful car park. So as part of this big 50, 50 million pound vision that the council's got, they're now talking about paving it all over, pedestrianising it, getting rid of all traffic. They've already made a few changes during the pandemic, but in more space for pedestrians and for cyclists. And so changing Grey Street in particular is the real headline, headline grabbing one in terms of what's being done to, to get more traffic off the streets. Dan Holland, thank you very much for speaking to us. Cheers, Rob. While in Greater Manchester, Sheffield, Bradford and Newcastle, civic leaders ponder the logistics of introducing clean air zones, they might want to look to the historic city of York, where a scheme to lower pollution levels has already been introduced to apparent success. To find out more, let's speak to Paula Widdowson, the Executive Member for Environment and Climate Change at City of York Council, which is run by a Liberal Democrat and Green Party coalition. Paula, welcome to the podcast. Tell us a bit about York's clean air zone and how it works and sort of how it's different to the other uh, zones people might know across Northern England. Oh, I'll be delighted to tell you this story because it's such a success. So we have the first, and believe it or not, Rob, the only voluntary clean air zone in the UK. So on the 31st of January 2020, we introduced a clean air zone across the city. So it goes within our inner ring road. Now, we're very lucky. York is um, a Goldilocks city. It's not too big. It's not too small. It's just about the right size. So anything inside of the inner ring road that was causing major pollution, we introduced this clean air zone. Now, it mainly applied to buses because going back one step, we had our own low emission strategy. And when we investigated it, much to our surprise, something like 70% of all the emissions inside of the city centre were coming from buses. Because we're so flat, we've got lots of buses going across us. We have some trains across the city, but it's mainly, mainly buses. So what we did was we focused our clean air zone on buses. And we said anything, any vehicle that was a bus that did more than five journeys within the inner ring road per day must, must comply with um, the ultra low emission buses. So we put that in place, but we gave the bus companies 12 months to become compliant. We told them it was coming and we gave them 12 months. At the same time, we worked with the taxi drivers and we said the same to them. You know, you've got 12 months to become compliant with this. And what we also did was talk to the Department for Transport and get some funding and look in our own pockets and got some funding and talk to the bus companies to say, what could you do and how could you do it? The result has been quite staggering. 
So from the last two years, and yes, we know the pandemic played some part of it, but we have seen a dramatic decrease in pollution inside the city centre. And because it's buses, actually across the whole of the city, whole of our region. So it's been tremendously successful and it's resulted in 33 fully electric double-decker buses in our park and ride. It's resulted in 93 other buses doing an upgrade who are mainly the coastliners or the fast buses that link us with Leeds and Hull, etc. And the public love it, the drivers like it, and the drivers of the buses have also agreed through the clean air zones to not, um, gosh, what's the word? I've forgotten the word now, not idle the buses for more than two minutes. So it has been a tremendous success, but it's voluntary and we got no money from the government for doing it. We did it ourselves. So, yes. Yeah, so when you say it's voluntary, I mean, obviously in other parts of the north, taxi operators and bus companies are being told you will have your vehicles will have to pay this amount of money if you're if they don't comply with certain standards so it was that not the case in in york it was it wasn't compulsory in the same in the same way oh, it's compulsory in the fact that if you want to drive a bus or a taxi across york you have to apply for a license and you will not get one unless you are an ultra low um, emissions bus right so it's it's compulsory in that respect you won't get a license to operate but it's voluntary in the fact that, okay, you don't need to operate and then we're not going to introduce a daily charge for you. Right, I see. And so there was, like you say, the majority of polluting emissions in York come from buses. So that's the reason why it wasn't extended to other commercial vehicles or uh, yeah, or taxis in the, in, in the same way. Yeah, what we've done with the taxis is that we've, um, again, we found some support and some money for them so that we have now encouraged 170 taxis across the York fleet to become either electric or petrol hybrid. And we've incentivised them to do that. There should be another 60 or 70 taking that on this year, which means we'll be up to nearly half of the taxis across the city being ultra low emissions as well. So we're doing it slowly slowly catch a monkey with other areas but it was the buses that were the main pollutants so they were the ones we tackled first then the taxis and just to build on this what this has allowed us to do as well is in in partnership with our low emission strategy what it's allowed us to do as well is gain some funding from the government to do a trial on the last mile into the city so for all the hgvs that are doing the deliveries for the different vans that are doing the deliveries, we're actually seeing, can we put hubs up where you put the goods in? And then for the last mile into the city, you do it through, um, for want of a better phrase, electric milk carts, go bikes, cargo bikes, you know, any any other way that is not an emitter of pollutants. Ah, so, so we've got polluting, that. The polluting vehicles would go up to a certain point in the city and then for the remainder of the journey it would be a a low emitting or non-emitting vehicle that would take the goods the rest of the way yeah absolutely and one final point to build on it as well i don't know if you've come across a company called tia t-i-e-r who do um electric scooters and bikes we've had an extremely successful trial over the last 18 months with them and we are now up to 2,000 commuter journeys a week on these scooters and bikes it's working really, really well. 
So all it all feeds, one thing feeds into another. So we started with the buses, it was a big thing. We've moved into the taxis and we're getting them there and they will be there within the next three years because that's what we've written. Um, we're helping in terms of the heavy goods vehicles that are delivering because we're going to do a trial there. We're helping with the commuters because there is an e-scooter or an e-bike alternative for you to do that as well. So there's an awful lot of different things going on to to make it easy for people to make the right choice. And then we've got some stings as well. So, you know, we've got Kick the Habit campaign, which we generated as a city for motorists as well as bus drivers, as well as HGV drivers, that actually has been used by several councils um, across the country because they thought it was such a good idea. Obviously, like you say, York has quite some quite specific characteristics, doesn't it? Uh, with you know the, mm-hmm. the nature of the city and, and and its size. I mean, the things that you know you have done successfully in York are, are there things that other cities, you know, Sheffield, Newcastle, Greater Manchester, Bradford, can can they learn from your example, or what, or did what has worked in York would not necessarily work elsewhere, in your opinion? Oh, no, I think it's completely replicable across the country. I mean, Sheffield have done a cracking job with their trams. So they have less buses, they have more trams, but they've still got quite a lot of buses. So they could do exactly the same thing as we've done. Um, I'm talking to colleagues up in Durham County Council, and they're looking at putting the e-bikes in to reduce the congestion because they've got a city centre, much like ours, but significantly hillier. So they're likely to go for e-bikes rather than e-scooters once we've got the trial on the last mile sorted again we'll put that learning out to everybody and if you're going to get taxi drivers to move from a cheaper vehicle to a more expensive vehicle you've got to make sure that it's doable so we didn't completely um, subsidize the cost of moving from one to the other but we made it acceptable because there was some funding some government funding a little bit more from us but also we've written into our charter that within three years, I think they've got three years, everybody, all the taxis have got to be ultra-low taxis. And one thing I've just forgotten, actually, by introducing this um, clean air zone, all of our vehicles, what we've done in the council, and we have nearly 500 vehicles that operate, all uh, that are less than three and a half tonnes, all of those over the next five years will be electric. And the two waste wagons that we use through the absolute city centre where the clean air zone is, they're electric as well. So that's the situation in York, Newcastle and Greater Manchester, which all have quite varied experiences of introducing clean air zones. In terms of what's going on elsewhere in the north, Liverpool City Council is currently considering whether to introduce a charging zone to bring its air pollution levels down, and reported in March that a city centre-wide zone was the best option to have seen so far. The council have agreed it in principle, but there has not yet been a public consultation. And in Yorkshire, it's interesting to look at the cities of Sheffield and Bradford and the challenges that face them. In Bradford, a zone covering 22.4 square kilometres was meant to come into force this month, but has been delayed until spring to allow businesses more time to use the funding available to upgrade their vehicles. 
but the Labour-run council has had 31.5 million clean air funding and 1.7 million for electric vehicles funding, meaning it's had more funding than any other local authority to make this scheme work and can offer more generous grants and exemptions packages. In Sheffield, the clean air zone only covers an area of 2.3 square kilometres inside the city's inner ring road and charges are due to be introduced from late 2022. The council told us that it originally asked for 37.7 million from the Clean Air Fund to support vehicle upgrades but were only awarded 20.4 million. But both authorities say they are not too concerned about the issue of vehicles just avoiding the charging zone and spreading pollution elsewhere. Sheffield says that buses, lorries, taxis, vans and coaches were generally going into the centre to provide a service like dropping off a passenger, while Bradford expects so-called displacement to be minimal. So, how is the Clean Air Zone scheme going nationally and what are the challenges? I asked Steve Gooding, Director of the RAC Foundation, a transport policy and research group. None of us wants to breathe dangerously polluted air, whether we're motorists or not. So the principle of tackling the sources of that pollution must be something we all support, so long as the measures that are taken are targeted, tailored and proportionate. Unfortunately, that can create its own problems for us because a tailored result, tailored to a particular place, particular circumstances, can result in quite a patchwork of restrictions and charges that differ from place to place, which could catch us out if we're driving for business, perhaps, and visiting more than one city. Now, most of the current clean air zones only impose charges on non-compliant commercial vehicles, buses, trucks, taxis. And that may mean that we private motorists would sigh with relief, but let's remember, those business costs are going to end up somewhere, and almost certainly, they're going to find their way through to us as consumers eventually. And on those few places where the charges apply to private cars, the biggest burden and the hardest choices are most likely to be faced by those households on lower incomes, the households who tend to own the older, the more polluting vehicles, but the households who are least well-placed to trade up to a newer, cleaner, but necessarily more expensive model. And that's why we think schemes to help people and particularly help small businesses over this financial hurdle really matter. Now, many schemes, such as those around Greater Manchester, are being established also with a grace period to allow businesses time to reconfigure their fleets to make the changes they need to make to clean up their act. And ultimately, I think we'd all say that we need to develop the right mix of travel options, whether it's cleaner cars, cleaner vans, cleaner buses and trucks, but also to have public transport that's reliable easy and affordable uh, for us all to use if we're going to make the trips that don't need uh, motor vehicles, if we're going to access the services and the retail centres. Clean air zones, of course, aren't the only restrictions that drivers may face. Increasingly, with road space being reallocated to provide dedicated bus lanes, cycleways, widened footways, the question looking ahead is whether drivers are going to see ever more, ever tighter restrictions being applied, but for good reason, to improve our air quality, tackle our carbon emissions. And I think from all our perspectives, the sooner industry can help us, the auto sector can help us transition to a zero tailpipe emission future, the better.
Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. See you next week.